You're listening to Soundbar, a podcast on white-collar defense, presented by Goodwin. Welcome to this special edition of Soundbar, where we focus on some of the impacts of COVID-19 on white-collar defense. Like the rest of the world, we're working from home and social distancing. My guest today is Jody Godoy, who reports on white collar case developments for a company called Law 360. Law 360 is the primary source of professional news for almost all lawyers, including those in the white collar bar. Every morning, bright and early, I get what is essentially an emailed newsletter from white collar Law 360 that gives me approximately a one page summary of 10 or 12 developments in the world of white collar defense from the previous day, whether it's an indictment, a jury verdict, an appeal, or any notable development. It's really strange to think that only a decade ago, this sort of information was only available in hard copy publications that would be circulating every two or three weeks. Jody lives in New York, that's her Law 360 beat, but she's originally from Santa Ana, California. She's been at Law 360 for about five years. And before that, she was a teacher and a freelance writer living in Japan. Jody, welcome to Soundbar. Hi, Jim. Thanks for having me. I think it's three weeks ago, uh, you and I and every other white collar lawyer in America were planning on going to the ABA White Collar Crime Conference in San Diego. Um, and then all of a sudden, the world went upside down with the coronavirus. And that now seems not just like it was three months ago, but also, uh, you know, kind of a lifetime ago. You feel the same way? Yeah, definitely. I mean, I call those the before times because that was back when I was looking forward to going to San Diego, like you said, catching up with sources like you and other other attorneys in the white collar space, uh, which, you know, as you know, is my, my beat. I write about white collar. Um, but, you know, it went from that to like, I can barely leave my apartment in New York City. So, yeah, it's a very different world we're living in. I actually think I learned that the conference was canceled in something that you wrote on Law 360, uh, yeah. in which you wisely pointed out that when the law firm started canceling their after hours parties, the white collar conference simply could not go on. Right. I mean, the parties are a huge part. You had companies who were telling people not to come and, you know, you had government agencies who were telling people not to go or who were deciding not to go. So, yeah, it all fell apart pretty quickly. So let's get to the meat of the thing here. The about half of Law 360's content now uh, is focusing on the effects of the coronavirus. And I know that you've written yep. out some and you're probably looking at others, but let's just talk about a few of these. I mean, one of the things that seems to be um, of significant concern is the lawyers are filing motions all over the place trying to get the release of defendants or prisoners who are incarcerated or who are about to be incarcerated. Um, and the predicate for all of this motion practice is sort of the intuitive presumption that prisons, whatever other wonderful qualities they might they might have, <laughs> they're, they're, they're not ideal for social distancing. Um, what, what, what are you seeing out there? What's Law 360 looking at uh, on this subject? Right. So as you mentioned, there's been kind of a deluge in the past week or so of uh, people who are either in detention or in prison 
asking judges, hey, you know, I, can you please let me out in light of the circumstances here? Some of them have, you know, serious health concerns. They're, they're older, they've got underlying conditions. However, you know, in New York City or New York State, we have seen a high number of younger individuals who are falling seriously ill with this as well. So it's not just the older populations who are asking, it's kind of a huge swath of, of everyone who's, who's incarcerated at kind of asking and their lawyers asking judges to, uh, particularly the people who are detained pre-trial to, to not, um, to, to release them or reconsider their, their uh, detention conditions to grant bail. Well, that's a really interesting point because this uh, this notion that um, people in their you know under forty are equally susceptible that that's news that's happened I think in the last day or two, right? Yeah, it's it's I think it's an emerging trend in uh, New York where I am, and so I'm following the news here pretty closely. Um, so you know, it's it's a uh, it's it's difficult, right? If you're if you're in, and especially if you're in detention. Uh, the conditions there are a lot, are even less amenable to social distancing than they might than they might conceivably be in a prison, because you kind of just have people on top of each other. And um, you know, the in in New York, the reports about the sanitariness are not not encouraging. So there's a huge effort right now to to get people out. Um, and you know, some judges have passed on these motions, and um, you know. Some of them have said, yes, this is a changed circumstance, and I will uh, reconsider uh, the detention order that was previously handed down. And some of them have said, you know what? Um, no. It's a tricky issue because, um, you know, judges have almost infinite discretion in how they choose to sentence people. And it's hard to imagine that the federal judiciary actually take approaching this thing on a, on a systematic basis. And it's also, I mean, the, the, the contexts in which these motions arrive are so different. I mean, you have people who are actually serving their sentence. You have people who are detained pending trial. You have people who are, um, have been convicted, but their appeal is pending. I mean, for example, the uh, John Kapoor, the founder of Insys, uh, he's been convicted of RICO. His case is on appeal, and he has a report date of May 2020. And he has filed a motion to continue, I think, indefinitely that report date. Um, so all of these, all of these particular situations are uh, are are kind of unique, and it's going to be difficult, I think, for the judiciary and defense bar and prosecutors to figure out to, to figure out how to approach them in a systematic way although that certainly seems what what's called for yeah no I, I think you're you're right and um, you know I think the systematic efforts are aimed as far as I can tell in New York are aimed more at the people who are in pre-trial detention right because you don't have a sentence there and the factors there are as you know primarily looking at are you a flight risk and are you are, are you going to cause harm to the community if, if we, you know, leave you out given what you're accused of doing? So um, it's like maybe a, a, a little bit more. And those, those two detention facilities in, in New York, as you know, um, where, you know, it's kind of the epicenter for um, the outbreak in the U.S., uh, the MDC and the MCC, both of them have confirmed cases now of, of inmates who are being um, isolated with the, with the virus. So 
That's, um, news, that, that's news this week, isn't it? That there are that actually inmates that are, that are contaminated. Yep. I saw that Law 360 reported on uh, Michael Cohen's attempt to uh, get out of jail, and his, the the judge didn't sort of waste much time denying that. Did you see? Did you did you see that? Right. One? Yeah. My my colleague reported that. I believe it, it was this week, and um, you know the the judge called it basically a publicity stunt, saying that he's not particularly at risk. You know, that's another thing you see is a lot of judges saying, well, you know, the Bureau of Prisons is putting measures in place to try to protect people. Um, and I kind of just have to trust that, you know, at this point, I can't say, I can't presume that those will fail is what some judges are, are saying. But yeah, Michael Cohen got his, uh, his bid to get out shut down. Yeah, but I, I and I, I've read the um, I've read the government's response that refers to the bureau, all the precautions the Bureau of Prisons has taken, but and you know they they have taken a number of steps and have been taking steps since January, but none of them seem to really speak to the problem of of, of the sort of desire of social distancing, which is I think almost would be almost impossible to obtain. Right, um, and the, yeah. yeah, the other thing is I think. Some of it, like, for example, banning visitors, um, seems to presume that nobody who's in right now has it, whereas, you know, what studies have shown is that you can be incubating for up to two weeks and not show symptoms, and then by the time you do, you may have already infected others. So, you know, the fact that people have been arrested, detained, you know, within the past few weeks gives cause for concern and not just the visitors. And then on the other hand, you also have the corrections officers who are coming in and out daily. Right. And could be a, you know, a way of passing it back and forth, unfortunately. Yeah. And to, and to show the variance in these motions, I mean, I mean, John Kapoor, the INSIS founder is 76 years old. He is plainly at risk. Michael Cohen was 53. His motion did not mention any, you know, health risks at all. And then you had uh, Andrew Davenport, um, who was convicted in sort of a valiant-related prosecution of honest services wire fraud. Uh, He reported in January. His sentence is only a year and a day, and he has type 2 diabetes, which makes him extremely at risk. And you just, you know, all of these different situations are going to be treated differently by different judges. And you know, I think most of the federal judges that I've talked to, they think sentencing is the most difficult part of their job. Some of them don't really like it, but they don't for sure want to be, uh, you know, signing someone's death warrant, if that's a possibility. Right. No, I mean, I don't envy these uh, people who are making these decisions now, obviously. And you see the judges, you know, discussing at length the risks here. They, it's It's clear to me, at least, that the large majority of judges are fully well aware, fully aware of the potential risks of, of leaving individuals in. Jody, let's move to another topic. Uh, and I know this is one is near and dear to the heart of you and Law 360. And it's the, you know, the First Amendment right of public and media access to criminal proceedings. So many courts are going to, um, you know, video conferencing and conference calls to conduct business. Um, you know, Law 360 has to figure out a way to get invited to those video conferences and teleconferences. How is that going to ha- how is that going to happen? So, yeah, you're right that the shift overnight from in-person <laughs> court appearances to 
telephonic and remote hearings has thrown, I think, everyone for a loop, uh, including reporters. We have about two dozen reporters in nine states plus the District of Columbia. So our court reporters are, you know, basically it's been a game of trying to figure out, you know, is there a telephonic hearing? Uh, how do I get into it? Will I be let in? You know, how, will I be let into it? Basically, how do I get the dial in? And things haven't been uniform on this front, although from what I hear from some of the court reporters, it's getting a bit better um, in terms of judges sort of knowing that there are people who would like access and, and allowing it. Um, but yeah, it's been, it's been like everything with this adjusting to life now is fits and starts. Yeah, I, I don't think you're going to be missing any trials or missing any jury trials for a while because those seem to be pretty much on hold everywhere yep um but there was an interesting motion that was filed in, in a criminal case in utah that i saw oh you're talking about love Derman, right yeah where yeah the jury deliberated at the same time that uh the president was declaring a national emergency and everyone was you know staying home from work and and starting social distancing and the motion describes or the motion alleges, I'm not sure what the basis is, that the jury was in a freaking panic because they had to stay there and they just, you know, did the easy thing in a criminal case, but just to convict. That's, that sounds like a, a very interesting motion that's going to be. Yeah. Uh, by, by the way, Jim, for we should totally talk. That case is the most insane. That's the craziest case I've ever heard of. So if you want to do a separate podcast about that sometime, we should talk. But it's a valid concern, right? I mean, when they, when you show up for jury service, they ask you, is there anything to keep you from, from being a fair and impartial juror on this case? And, you know, I know when I showed up in, in state court once, you know, they asked me that and I said, well, you know, the loss of salary over the next couple of weeks would surely weigh heavily on my mind. And, and then they let me go. Um, so, you know, with, a, with people trying to rush home, it seems like it could be, an argument, um, but I assume that we'll have to, the, the appeals court will have to, or the, the judge will have to, to deal with that. Not, not, not to, you know, trivialize this, but I was reminded in that case of a situation where I had a defendant that was convicted in a jury trial. I ran into one of the jurors in a bar a couple years later, and they said, you would have done fine, but there were too many smokers on the jury. And they weren't getting smoke breaks, so they just said, "What the hell, guilty." <laughs> Grand juries. Um, the Southern District announced a plan a couple of days ago where they're going to permit the grand jurors to uh, convene in two different places: one in the grand jury room uh, in Lower Manhattan, and also in a courthouse in in Westchester. Um, what have you been hearing about that and about and about grand jury practice in this age? I mean, that's, that was, as you, as you know, it was, a, it was a totally new thing, never been done as far as I know. Um, and it's interesting, right? I mean, like, as a defense attorney, do you think, wouldn't, wouldn't any defense attorney, this is my, sort of my question to you, like, would, would any defense attorney challenge uh, an indictment uh, turn, you know, that comes back in that way? Like, how... Yeah, I, I think doesn't that I, create I, problems for because the grand jury is supposed to. You've got people videoing in trying to assess the credibility of a witness. How does that work? Defense attorneys will make challenges to this uh, for sure. Uh, um, is, is this actually going to affect 
whether grand juries return an indictment or not in any case. I mean, they always do, so it doesn't really matter. Yeah. But there, there are some legal issues here. I mean, you know, one of the th- you know, the, first of all, there's logistical issues for the prosecutor. They got to make sure that all of the exhibits, the draft of the indictment, uh, are available in both places. They have to make sure that, um, you know, the the grand jurors in both places can judge the witness's credibility, evaluate the documentary evidence, and so forth. Since this seems to be um, driven by a desire to permit social distancing, you know, they're going to have to have sufficient technology where people can see a document on a screen, you know, at a distance and clearly see someone testifying, um, you know, at a distance where they're not all huddled together around, um, you know, a small screen. That would seem to be defeat the purpose. Grand jury secrecy is governed by Rule 60 of the Federal Rules of Criminal Procedure. And it, by its text, it only allows uh, government attorneys, a witness, an interpreter if necessary, and the operator of a recording device to be in the grand jury room. So you could see questions arising about, you know, the people that are sort of running the video technology and, you know, Zoom or Skype or whatever it is, you know, they're not specifically enumerated as people who can be in the grand jury room. You know, are they people operating a recording device? Well, they're operating more than a recording device. So I'm, I'm sure challenges will, will come. Um, the law for challenging a grand jury's indictment is almost hopelessly, is, is hopeless from a defense attorney's, you know, perspective. You, you have to prove prejudice, which would be almost impossible for you know, some Supreme Court cases of the, the last couple of decades. Yeah, no, it's interesting. I mean, and the other question is, will grand jurors continue to show up? I mean, in the city, at least, it's it's a ghost town. So um, it's something we're watching for sure. Last thing, Jody, something near and dear to at least my heart is how is this going to affect, um, you know, white collar practice? Um, you know, most, most attorneys, uh, big law who do white collar work, you know, as part of their bread and butter is internal investigations. And, you know, internal investigations, there's always a preference, you know, when you're interviewing, you know, witnesses to do it in person and to have the documents, you know, in the room with the witness. Everyone's at a conference table, conference room table in a law firm showing the witness, you know, the document and asking questions and, you know, judging the witness's credibility. Um, this can all be done remotely, but it seems like it's going to be a big change for a while. Right. And from what I'm hearing from the folks I've talked to, it's, they don't, you know, it's, it's not preferable. Like people don't like having to do things over the phone and video. Cause as you know, when you're talking over the phone or on video, it's harder to gauge a person's reaction to something when you're showing it to them. It's harder to, know and and sort of feel how credible they are when they're talking so i've heard that people are still you know people are still pressing forward with investigations internal investigations companies are still actually doing them the the department of justice is still from what i've heard asking people for for things and moving some matters along though um you know it's it's it is creating from what i can tell a slowdown in terms of the pace of investigations, and not just on the the um, 
the internal side, but on the government side as well, because, you know, you have to have, uh, you know, for example, agents, you can't have as many agents in one space anymore. You can't, you know, from, from what I've heard, there's, there's not as much, at least in the past week or so, like door knocking or um, right. those types of actions. So that's interesting. Yeah. On the one hand, it's a, it's a, a slowdown. On the other hand, like I think law practices in general are super busy right now. Companies have all kinds of questions. You know, the other thing that folks do is, is compliance. So how, how do you keep abreast of what your employees are doing when everyone's working from home? How do you continue to comply with various regulations and laws to the extent they haven't been relaxed? Um, and then, you know, down the road, I think white collar practitioners are, are looking at, you know, some of the follow on effects that may come from this, which, you know, looking to past experience with bailouts and the like, there may, we may see fraud, uh, procurement fraud, and other types of fraud. Uh, the Department of Justice, as you know, has decided to, uh, in the past week, focus, uh, or at least make one of its uh, main focuses enforcement actions against coronavirus related fraud right so right uh companies and people who are trying to run scams or other other fraud schemes that are uh, taking advantage of the situation right yeah there's already been a civil complaint uh filed against a company in austin texas who is purporting to sell coronavirus vaccine kits online for 495 so i think that's i'm sure we're going to see a lot more of those fraud prosecutions um, just to just, you know, as there was a ton of this with the Katrina fraud, you know, hundreds of prosecutions brought all over the country. Right. Um, for, for, all, for all the white collar lawyers and in-house counsel and so forth that are, um, you know, worrying about how to conduct internal investigations, I do have this recommendation is that they should read Malcolm Gladwell's book, Talking to Strangers, where he makes a very persuasive point that even professional investigators uh, really suck at telling if people at, at determining whether people are telling the truth or not. So um, I'm not sure that you know, <laughs> you're going to lose a whole lot when these investigations have to be done uh, remotely. Jody, thank you so much for your time. I can't let you leave without asking you the mandatory podcast guest question, which is this: Tell us about your first concert. Who'd you see? What was the venue? And who'd you go with? Oh man, this, I mean, this is a difficult question, Jim, because I've been going to rock shows since I was like 12 years old. So I can barely even remember the first concerts I've been to. Uh, but, you know, I have to say one that stood out to me when I was in, I was living in Japan and I got to see the first, it was, this was not my first concert, but it was my first and only time to see the band Pavement. They had a reunion show in Tokyo, and I went with a friend who I had met on the internet because I went around looking for pavement fans in Tokyo, and it was an amazing show. That's awesome. Jody, thank you so much. I've enjoyed talking to you, and uh, I'm sure I'll be reading more of your posts on White Collar Law 360 over the next few days and few weeks. Thanks a lot, Jim. It's been great. Hey, people. Thanks for listening. These are strange, strange times. Stay safe. Talk to you next time.